Today's reading comes from all over the book of Proverbs. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil are perverted speech I hate. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Yeah, Jesus, we do thank you uh, that the promise to us today is that if we humble ourselves in you, uh, that we will obtain life and riches and honor and glory in the truest sense, in the best sense uh, possible. Lord, I ask that even now uh, you would, by your spirit, convict our hearts of the pride therein, or that you would help us to walk uh, in the way of humility, uh, as we've seen in your son Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good afternoon. Thanks, Josh. That's awesome. Uh, one more. Tina, we have a slide there. We have a parking slide. Tina, do you want to throw that up on the screen that Joel made? So just in case you're wondering, hey, where is that place that Heath is talking about? There's Tammy right there. There's London Drugs. Behind that is two-hour free parking. Uh, this is an effort to love our neighbors in that neighborhood very well. If we're just parking in front of their house and, and staying there uh, for the day, uh, maybe for lunch afterwards, uh, we'll soon become people that they resent. And so in order not to do that, uh, please park there. Also right beside Fami, there's some, uh, there's some two-hour parking, uh, free parking right there as well. Uh, and so just so you know, we'll put that on social media so you can take a look at it, but that's for parking next week at 10 a.m., which is really exciting. I feel like I'm more excited than you are about this, but I'm very excited. Uh, 10 a.m., uh, FAMI, uh, next week, 2605 East Pender Street, if you're wondering. Uh, that's the address, 10 a.m. next week. Did I say that? 10 a.m. next week, FAMI, be there. Don't be here. Uh, just a note as well. There's a lot of notes uh, today. Uh, we're beginning a two-week a series starting next week, next Sunday, uh, called Death and Decrease. Uh, what a fun way to start a church plan, eh? You, you have a series called Death and Decrease. We're going to look at the themes of death and decrease in the Gospel of John and how these actually might be uh, the secrets uh, to what we're looking to do uh, in, in Hastings Sunrise, uh, in our gospel witness, in our gospel proclamation. A two-week series called Death and Decrease. I told Joel to make a graphic that has like skulls on it or something, uh, and so it'd be really fun for us. Uh, after that, on September 15th, we're launching uh, our launch Sunday, but we're also launching our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And so in case you were wondering, we will be again making those books that will have the community group discussion questions in them, as well as the notes that you can take uh, with each sermon. Also this year, a little bonus, there's some essays in that book for you to uh, learn about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's a historical reception. Uh, that's a nerdy word that we can talk about later. Uh, and a whole bunch of different uh, things. And so those books will be ready for September 15th. That's it. This Sunday, though, is our last Sunday in Proverbs. And we're going to look at two themes, uh, the themes of pride and humility. Now, pride and humility, uh, you could say, are the two themes of the Bible. Uh, pride and humility. As we've been going throughout our series, uh, the undercurrent of each one of our topics has really been these topics of pride and humility. We've been talking about speech, uh, but really we're talking about pride and humility. We've been talking about money, but really we're talking about pride and humility in a sense. 
we can think of pride and humility in Proverbs sort of like turning on the tap at our house or, or flicking the switch. Like, we don't know, especially I don't know, because I don't know anything about construction. Uh, we don't know how that water got there. We don't know how that electricity got there. Heath does. He'll tell you later. Uh, but we don't think about that, right? Pride and humility function the same way in Proverbs. Uh, they're running underneath all that we see, all that we're learning. Pride and humility are always at play. So, for example, uh, I might know exactly, exactly the words that I need to stop saying. But I might not know, I might not be aware of the proud heart that gave birth to those words. I I might know exactly when I'm hoarding money and being greedy and being selfish and unwise financially. But but do we recognize and do I recognize the underlying proud selfishness that makes it so difficult to be generous? Uh, Pride and humility in one one sense are really the heart of, of Proverbs. Like the fear of the Lord... The questions of our pride and our humility bleed into every wisdom conversation. That's why John Stott, uh, the late pastor preacher, he said this, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. And so if you're with me, uh, today we're going to get to know our greatest enemy a little bit better and our greatest friend a bit better as well, too. And to do this, I want us to see, as we look at pride and humility in Proverbs, first, the foolishness of pride, a second, uh, the wisdom of humility, and then thirdly and finally, uh, the way of humility. You guys with me? Yes? Awesome. A lot of head nodding. I like it. The foolishness of pride, the wisdom of humility, and the way of humility. First thing, the foolishness of pride. Now, if I say pride... Uh, in our culture, in our day and age, that word means very different things to very different people in very different places. And so it's helpful for us uh, to define what I'm talking about when I talk about pride. The first thing we should see is that in Proverbs, uh, Solomon, the other authors, they're always using that word negatively. No one's like, yeah, go pride, or like, you've got some good pride. Like, it's always negative in Proverbs. It's never positive. Now, Fred Eaton, he's our Kitsilano lead pastor. He defined pride the other week like this. I think it's helpful. Pride is spiritual blindness brought on by an inflated view of ourselves. Spiritual blindness brought on by an inflated view of ourselves. In our quest for truly wise living that acknowledges and lives into God's created order. Remember, we saw this in week one. There's an order to this world that God has created. And in our quest to live wisely with the grain of the world, uh, pride stands in the middle of a highway, like a 40-foot high, 40-foot wide cement wall. It makes pursuing wisdom and pursuing righteousness almost impossible. Why? Because the proud person cannot, and please hear me, cannot and indeed does not fear the Lord. If the beginning of wisdom, as we've already seen, is the fear of the Lord, the proud person refuses to do that. And to see this really clearly, I want us to go back to week one. Now, I know that you've been listening to the series so intently that you remember week one like it was yesterday. So this is all just like recap for you. But in case you don't remember week one, I want to reintroduce us uh, to a character there. In week one, we we met the, the simple or the gullible youth. Look at Proverbs 1, 2 to 4 with me, and let's meet this character again. Solomon wrote, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. And then verse 4, look at this. To give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the youth. 
Uh, Verse 4 tells us who the target audience of Proverbs is, the simple or the gullible youth. And you should ask, well, who are the simple or the gullible youth? Really simply, they're this person. They are open to everything and committed to nothing. Open to everything and committed uh, to uh, nothing. As we continue, though, in in chapter 1, what we find is basically Proverbs, and you'll see this in verse uh, 8 if you have your Bibles open, Hear my son, your father's instruction, uh, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs is essentially this parental instruction uh, to the impressionable youth, open to everything, committed to nothing, uh, commending them to and and urging them to choose the path of wisdom and, and righteousness. But in verse 122, uh, we find something that, that it perhaps is all too familiar to us. Uh, people, despite our pleading, despite our, our, our outlining our best arguments, don't always choose the, choose the path of wisdom and righteousness, do they? So in 122, we find Solomon saying this, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? This word simple here is not like a nice word. <laughs> How long, O basic ones, if I can translate, will you love being basic? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? And if we continue down in chapter 1, we discover how this proud refusal to listen to wisdom plays itself out. Uh, Look at 124 to 32 with me. Because I have called, and this is wisdom speaking. Wisdom is speaking here. Wisdom personified. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Verse 29. Because they hated knowledge and listened and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Look at verse 32. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. This doctrine, uh, this teaching in Proverbs, uh, that the fruit of the proud will be their own destruction is something that you see time and time and time and time again from Solomon and the other authors. Look at Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction. Maybe you've heard that before. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs fifteen twenty five. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Now you might be asking, well, what exactly is meant by destruction here? Is this like big Jesus coming back, eternal, like apocalyptic kind of destruction? Is that what, what, what's being talked about here? Or is this merely a horizontal destruction, like destruction in my relationships, uh, in, my, in my finances, in, in my family? Uh, I have bad news for you. The answer that Proverbs gives us is, is both. It's both uh, horizontal destruction and, and vertical destruction. Pride is the spiritual blindness brought on by an inflated view of ourselves that leads to destruction now and forever. Destruction spiritually and destruction physically in this life and in the life to come. And if you think I'm way out uh, to left field uh, in this, let me have us examine this first from the perspective of, of horizontal destruction. 
How do we see pride leading to horizontal destruction? Uh, It is still now, is it not, almost unanimously accepted that at the heart of most of our problems, like at the root of our problems individually and as a society, is our low self-esteem. Isn't that what most people think? If we just felt better about ourselves, if we just thought more highly of ourselves, we'd be in a better place as a culture, as a people. Isn't that true? Uh, But in a fascinating article in 2002 uh, in the New York Times called The Trouble with Self-Esteem, Lauren Slater, uh, she's a psychologist, she writes that low self-esteem isn't actually at all the problem with our society. Listen to what she says. The fact is, we put antisocial men through every self-esteem test we have, and there's no evidence, not some, there's no evidence for the old psychodynamic concept that they secretly feel bad about themselves. These men are racist or violent because they don't feel bad enough about themselves. Uh, Slater's assessment lines up with what other psychologists have called the depressive realism hypothesis. The depressive realism hypothesis. In in this, this is the idea uh, that people suffering, and it's a little bit funny, not that funny, but people suffering from clinical depression have in fact a clear understanding of themselves and of their own abilities than people who have an overly optimistic view of themselves. Like people who are depressed have a better assessment of what they can and cannot do have a more realistic grasp, really, on the world. Now, I'm not advocating, don't mishear me, uh, that the answer to our pride is, is we all suffer from clinical depression. That, that's not what I'm advocating. But what I think we are seeing, and what I think secular psychology is confirming, is that having an increasingly high opinion of ourselves and our own abilities, a, a high self-esteem, if you will, at best, at best, invites delusion into your life, and at worst, invites destruction into your life. At best, invites delusion into your life, and at worst, invites destruction into your life. Proverbs confirms this. Look at Proverbs 13.10 with me. By insolence, or as some translations put it, by pride. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Strife, heartache, a difficulty, all come with pride because it is pride, that this spiritual blindness is at the root of, of stubbornness and, and anger and, and arrogance and selfishness and a desire to make our name for ourselves at all costs. And the strange thing about pride, the strange thing about pride is that we hate these traits in other people. We can point out a proud person a mile away, but magically, and isn't it magic, that we ourselves, we're actually never proud. She's stubborn. I just have firm convictions, right? He's arrogant. I'm just confident in the work that I do. Uh, they're selfish. I'm just protecting the asset, doing, having, having a self-care uh, day. The result is that culturally speaking, as a whole, we are incredibly inconsistent and incredibly enabled to distinguish and diagnose what pride actually is. If you lined up 100 people, you would have 100 different definitions of what is proud and what is not. On one hand, we detest pride in others. On the other, we never, ever, ever, don't we see it in ourselves? It's, it's, our, it's our lifelong blind spot. In C.S. Lewis's classic, Mere Christianity, fantastic book, would highly recommend. If you haven't read it, read it. He has this chapter called The Great Sin. He's talking about pride. And in that chapter, he writes this. There is one voice, uh, sorry, voice, one vice, of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, 
and of, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which, make a man, which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. We, we are so good at deceiving ourselves. We are experts at deceiving ourselves that we often fail to see the foolish pride that runs and directs and guides at the heart of most of our decisions. Pride is the foundation of our radically individualistic culture. Pride is behind every slogan and advertising. Pride is in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink. Pride is the reason we don't read our Bibles. Pride is the reason that we don't pray. Pride is the reason that we don't listen to wise and loving counsel. Pride is the reason that we don't give financially. Pride is the reason that we don't love our neighbors. Further, pride wounded is what causes us to retreat from other people, to wallow in self-pity, and to always think ourselves the victim. Lewis is right when he continues to say in that very chapter, pride has been the chief cause of every misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Listen, pride has been the chief cause of every misery in every nation, in every family since the world began. And I don't think that's hyperbole. I don't think that's exaggeration. See, not only does pride create chaos and death and destruction horizontally, it is deadly vertically. What prevents us you and me from coming to the creator God of our universe? What prevents us from fearing the Lord? What prevents us from valuing his wisdom above all else? It's pride. This simple belief that God is not who he says he is and I am the absolute authority that I say I am. What we need to be reminded of today, and perhaps this is a hard word, is that God is not simply unhappy or disappointed in the proud, but that he actively opposes the proud. Look at Proverbs 8.13 with me. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. In God's wisdom, he hates pride. He hates it. And this has always been true. He hated pride in the great king Nebuchadnezzar, so God removed his sanity. He hated pride in the great king Herod, who took the glory for himself. And so we're told, Herod was immediately struck dead and worms ate his body. He hated pride in Ananias and Sapphira, who thought they could outsmart God, lie to him, and were struck dead. He hates pride in them, and he hates pride in us. And so in a sobering moment, in a sobering moment, where are we proud? As individuals? Where are we proud? As a people, as a young church, where are we proud? I'll say this. Nothing kills momentum in the life of a young church. Nothing kills vibrancy and and, and spirit-filledness, if that's a word. Nothing kills what we want to see in the life of a young church like pride. This includes, I'll be the first to say this, proud leadership. Proud leadership kills this. This includes pride in the way we as a church speak and act towards our neighbors. Parking anywhere just because we can't. Towards the other churches in the city. How do we speak of other churches in the city? It, it includes pride in the conversations and in the counseling of its members. Pride as seen in our unwillingness to open up our homes, our hearts, 
our lives to people in fear that they might hurt our pride. All destruction, all death, all bad things, both horizontally and vertically, in this age and the age to come, come from foolish pride. Which means, I hope you feel this tension with me, we all, all of us, need to learn the wisdom of humility, or we could say the humility that comes with being truly wise. If John Stott is right that pride is our greatest enemy, then he's also right in saying that humility is our greatest friend. In Proverbs, we can think of humility as the heart behind righteous living. The heart behind righteous living. Remember, if you forget the definition of righteousness, let me remind you, righteousness in Proverbs is disadvantaging ourselves in order to advantage the other. Humility is the necessary first posture that we must take, that our heart must take in order to, to act righteously towards our, our neighbor. Uh, John Dixon, he's a scholar, he's a historian. He wrote, he wrote this helpful little book called Humilitas. It's not particularly Christian, but it examines sort of the history of humility and sort of how it's played itself out through the ages. It's a fascinating book to read. But in that book, he defines humility throughout the ages uh, like this. Humility, then, is the noble choice to forgo your status or deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service to others. To hold power in service to others. And so Dixon in his book tells the story of 1930s Detroit, which we all can just immediately imagine. Oh yeah, 1930s Detroit. I grew up uh, not too far from Detroit, would go there on, on occasion to see Detroit Tigers game, then I would leave. A rough neighborhood, rough city at the time of my upbringing, kind of gentrifying now, changing, different topic. Uh, but in 1930s Detroit, uh, these men got on this bus, three of them got on this bus, and there's a guy sitting at the back of the bus. And they began to harass this guy. Call him names, harass him, make fun of him, uh, whatever. The bus pulls up to a stop. Man gets up. They soon realize that this man that they were harassing uh, was a lot bigger than they thought. He begins to walk towards them uh, and hands them a business card. And on that business card is just uh, the man's name. Now, first off, if you have a business card with just your name on it, and you know what I do, you know who I am, like that is like the, the pinnacle of life, right? Am I wrong in that? I think so. <laughs> I'm going to start making those for myself. And you'll be like, you're a loser, Jake. Um, but he hands him his business card just with his name on it. And they look down uh, and they, they read there, uh, Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis. Now, because uh, you're uh, kind of like me, you're like, I don't know who Joe Lewis is. Uh, Joe Lewis is, is the greatest boxer who ever lived. The greatest boxer who ever lived, Joe Lewis. Better than Muhammad Ali. Don't come at me with that garbage. The greatest boxer ever lived, Joe Lewis. Uh, they said that Joe Lewis could knock out a horse with one punch. Now, how they tried that out, I don't know, uh, but apparently he could do it. Holding power, right, in service uh, to, to, to other people. Uh, that's humility as Dixon defines it throughout the ages. Now, we should note, there's nothing particularly Christian about that definition, right? That can apply to, to followers of Jesus or, or to Buddhists or, or to the atheists alike. There's nothing particularly Christian about that, holding service in power to others. But Proverbs goes a bit deeper. See, Proverbs speaks of a deeper humility, one that comes from the fear of the Lord. See, Joe Lewis was humble. Uh, he was not proud because he grew up in a, in a poor home uh, where they had to work for every little piece of food uh, in, in a blue-collar neighborhood, and he had to fight for that. He, he always could remember where he came from. That was the point of his humility. Likewise, our source of humility as Christians as followers of Jesus, begins in not forgetting where we came from and not forgetting where we've been. It comes 
when, then, when there's this honest and gut-wrenching acknowledgement that our hearts are terribly proud and wicked, and that if not for the intervening grace of God in our life, we would remain in our destructive ways which lead to death. This is why other Christian authors have simply defined humility as seeing things the way they truly are. Now this is problematic for us because we might not disagree with the Christian teaching that we were dead in our sin and that God and God alone in Jesus reached into our life and saved us. We might not disagree, at least intellectually or verbally, uh, with that teaching. But our lives might tell a different story. When we live from a place of our identity and worth uh, that is wrapped up in something other than what God says about me and his son Jesus, we're really saying that there's a part of me that Jesus didn't need to die for. There's a part of me that is fine outside of the redemptive work in Jesus. There's a part of me that really wasn't that bad, and Jesus came and fixed up this other stuff. Right? Like my bathroom was good. He just renovated my kitchen and my living room, right? There's a part of me that didn't really need Jesus, but I guess he's here anyways. Got to make himself at home like an unwelcome house guest. That's just not how the humble live. I want us to see three things about how the humble live. The first is this. The humble seek the good of others. We just saw this with the Joe Lewis example, but we see it again, perhaps more clearly, more biblically, if you will, in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, 3 to 4, we see this relationship between humility and seeking the good of other people really, really clearly. Paul writes there, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, if your attitude is, I've done this myself, I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps, no way I'm going to waste my time with you, then you've missed the point. You've missed the gospel. You've missed the fact that you were dead in your sins. Ezekiel says, you were like a baby covered in blood at the side of the road. How helpless is that baby? They can't do anything. That was you outside of Jesus. The humble in Proverbs are teachable. Solomon writes this. Look on the screen behind me. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Look at verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. One of my favorite examples of fear of the Lord leading to humility, leading to teachability in the Bible is found in the New Testament in the person of the Apostle Peter. In John 6, John says that Jesus is teaching some hard and some strange things. And because of that, John records, uh, he says this, after this, after this teaching, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. Uh, These people could not be taught. Indeed, they did not want to be taught. But when Jesus turns and looks at the 12 and he asks the 12, hey, are you leaving too? Like, are you also going as well? Do you remember what Peter says? John 6, 68 to 69, he says this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Peter has had his whole paradigm of, of what is true and right and good in this world shifted. And so he's doing the math here, right? You you see the the wheels turning in his head. If Jesus, you are the Holy One of God, then how can I not help but learn from you? If Jesus, you are the Holy One of God, how can I not help but receive what you say as true? 
Where else can I go, he's saying. Where else can we go? In a posture, in a position of complete and utter teachability. Fear of the Lord, humility, teachability. Now, at times, I think we think teachability, and we define teachability a bit different. We think teachability means that we are open to every uh, uh, philosophy, every school of thinking that presents itself to us. Uh, Openness is, is how we like to talk about it instead. In fact, we're taught, are we not, that we have the power to come to conclusions with completely open minds. With no prior bias, no prior position. That we are in this position of power, just looking at the world, and we can come to decisions on our own, in our own time. Uh, ironically, that, that teaching that we can learn from this neutral point of observation is, isn't an example of modernist pride, but that's a different uh, sermon. See, see, humble Christian teachability in the Bible begins, not free-floating, Right? Like the, that's the gullible, simple youth of Proverbs 1-4. Open to everything, committed to nothing. And is that not the spirit of our age? Open to everything, committed to, to, to nothing, right? We're people who love to have dialogue. We love that word, dialogue. Love to have conversation. But we don't love to land. If we receive every teaching equally, and, and hear me, I'm not arguing for some sort of narrow fundamentalism, but if we receive every teaching equally, not only will we be extremely confused, but you will be about, be about as useful as those men in Athens that Luke describes who would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Or like the wicked who Paul describes to Timothy as always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Again, are there verses that better describe our age than these? The humble person knows that they are unwise and ignorant. And they know their great need to sit at the feet of the Holy One of God. And they do not dismiss or neglect it, but they treasure and nurture and guard all that the Lord has taught them. If you were to look at, at Paul's letters to Timothy, what does Paul instruct Timothy to do? Guard and, and keep safe that deposit of the gospel I gave to you. Don't, don't offer it up, but, but keep it safe. Guard it. Nur, nurture it. Keep it. Uh, pass it on. That's what we're ought to do. Finally, the humble will be exalted. Proverbs 3.34 says, Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but the humble, he gives favor. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, uh, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 22.4, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. To see how the humble will be exalted, we have to turn now from the wisdom of humility to consider the way of humility. As each of those Proverbs tells us, there's this theme in the Bible that that comes up time and time again. That the way up is the way down. That the way to the crown is through the cross. That the way to increase in the kingdom of God is to, to, to decrease. Jesus says as much in Matthew's Gospel, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. But he says in Matthew 23, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If it is true that God opposes the proud, and if it is true that the wise are the humble, and the humble are wise, indeed, if it is true, if there's a promise that the humble will be exalted, how do we get there? How do we get there? The first thing is this. We have to recognize that pride is perhaps more pervasive in our lives than we'd like to think. That every day, in our great triumphs, 
And in our great failures, uh, some form of pride is at play. And it's not enough just to try to be more humble. Have you tried that before? Like you just like, I'm going to be more humble, and then you succeed, and you're like, yes, I am more humble. And like, of course, what's happened, right? Like you're proud now, right? I'm the most humble person you've ever met before, right? Immediately fail. Or if, if we fail in our attempt to be more humble, our pride is wounded, and again, we stand condemned. Like pride is not just in the obvious things, it's in the little things, the, the secret things. It's in you, it's in me, and it's working in nefarious and small ways. Which is why the second thing we need to hear, and this is the good news, is that the path to humility is only made possible through Jesus. Now, I, I know all of you, and I know many of you have grown up in the church and heard this time and time again, the answer is always Jesus, Right? Right? You were expecting that, right? Like, you'll get caught off guard in Sunday school, just say Jesus. Like, oh, nice work, Jake. You know, you did it, right? You understand. Uh, we may know that. We might know that the way of the humble is, is, is Jesus, that we're to emulate Jesus. But, but the question is, like, do we really believe that? In Matthew 11, Jesus instructs all who would follow him uh, to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's how it's possible. Jesus comes and sees us for the first time this afternoon. See this afresh. Jesus comes gentle and lowly in heart. And just as a side note, if you're in that place right now, you're, you're gentle and lowly in heart, like, like you're low right now, Jesus came gentle and lowly in heart. Not on a chariot, as would be befitting his divinity, not on a war horse, as would be befitting his kingship, but in humility, Jesus takes on flesh, dies the death of a criminal, uh, is resurrected from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of God. And that same Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What does this mean? Now, of course, there is a sense in which we are not God taking on flesh. And so we're not replicating the incarnation in that way. You and I cannot die for the sins of the world. But there's a way in which Jesus is saying, you, you are to do the same. Everything in our world says, look out for number one. I guarantee you, your places of employment, to some level, to some degree, have preached you the message of look out for number one. Look out for yourself. Our heart, we don't need other people to say this, our heart says, look out for number one. Isn't that true? But Jesus in his life, death and resurrection shows us a better way. But here's the, here's the great part. Not only does Jesus show us a better way, Jesus is not just some supreme example. Jesus empowers us today to walk that better way. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians 3, and hear this, because we have been raised with Christ, because we're united to Christ, we are able, this is amazing, we are able today, Christian, to clothe ourselves with the very attributes of Christ. And so Paul writes to the people in in Colossae, he says this, he encourages them, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. In the ancient world, uh, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, these are not celebrated things, right? No, you got to get ahead, much like our our day-to-day, right? Anger and, and forthrightness. And, and, and furthering your family name. These are qualities to be praised in the ancient world. But, but Jesus comes into our history, into our world, and he disrupts it. 
See, we're so used to thinking in a Judeo-Christian way. We're like, yeah, kindness and humility and meekness, patience, those are good. Those were never good before Jesus. Jesus comes and turns the whole world on its head. The idea here in this passage is that in Christ, united to him, we are able to grow into the identity, to, to fill the shoes, if you will, that we're already standing in. We're able to be more and more and more the people God created us to be in his son. And I think the key, if you want to know the secret, the secret to defeating pride in your life today is seeing who you are in Christ. Uh, there's something that Tim Keller, he's a pastor, he, he said a while ago that I like. Something to the effect of this. Unless you know today who you are in Christ, you will never have the strength to admit just how much sin is still in your life. Unless you know today who you are in Christ, you will never have the strength to admit just how much sin is still in your life. Keller continues to say this. If your foundation this afternoon is, I'm a good person, like I do good things, like I'm, I'm, I'm a good guy, that, that, that's who I am, and not, I'm in Christ, uh, then you will uh, screen out and ignore data that threatens this primary identity of, I'm a good person. Really, you do this. No, I'm a good person. Really, I saw this. I'm a good person, Right? Finding ourselves in Christ so completely flips the, 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 the script. See, knowing who you are in Christ not only frees the Christian to confidently search their heart knowing that they're safe in Jesus, right? As First John says, to confess their sin knowing that Christ is faithful and just to forgive us. But it frees the person here this afternoon who doesn't know Jesus uh, but is scared to leave what they've built their life on behind. Because the message of the gospel is not that you leave your stuff and go to nothing. The message of the gospel is that you leave your stuff and you leave the foundation you've built and you go to a better one. You go to a better foundation. You go to Jesus. People, we were meant to boast. We, We were meant to brag. If it feels natural to brag, that's because we were meant to brag. We were meant to be a proud people. Uh, but not, though, in the silly things we do or the silly things we get, or, or some other silly thing. We were meant to boast in big, glorious, cosmic realities. Cosmic realities like being joined, united mysteriously, to the triune God of the universe. We were meant to boast in Christ, in him alone. And when you encounter the God of the universe in Jesus, how can you not be humble? How can you not help but see things the way they truly are? Let's pray together. Jesus, we confess that our pride and my pride uh, likely runs much deeper than we know. And is at play in, in places we don't even realize. We ask, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, as we sit under your word, as we sing songs of your goodness, as we gather as a people, both here and in community groups, Lord, that we would, by your Spirit, uh, begin to uncover those places of pride in our hearts. Lord, that, that, that repentance would mark us as a people. That confession of sin would mark us as a people. Not a people who think that we're, we're stupid or idiots or, or just down on ourselves all the time, but a people who are just so confident that we're in Jesus, uh, that, that we're able to freely expose these things, knowing our life is secure in Him, our identity is secure in Him. 
Lord, would we be a people who, who build our whole lives on you? And we need your help to do this, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.